This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Stan Tatkin. Stan is a psychotherapist, researcher, and author who integrates neuroscience and attachment theory into his research into couples therapy. He has a clinical practice in Calabasas, California, and is the developer of a psychobiological approach to couples therapy, also known as PACT. With Sounds True, Stan has published the audio learning series, Your Brain on Love, The Neurobiology of Healthy Relationships. For this part two of my conversation with Stan Tatkin, Stan and I spoke about two nervous systems getting along in relationship and the role of nervous system regulation in love. We also talked about fighting well and how a couple can wave a flag of friendliness during a fight and the core attitudes and skills required to get out of any argument in five minutes or less. Yes, you heard me right. How to get out of any argument in five minutes or less. We also talked about the importance of being tethered to another person so securely that you could count on that other person 24-7, no matter what. Here's part two of my very illuminating conversation on Your Brain on Love with Dr. Stan Tatkin. Stan, I want to pick up with a comment that you made towards the end of the first part of our conversation. You said something like this, that your work really comes out of the study of human arousal more even than it does from your study of attachment theory. And I wanted you to talk about that, what you've learned from the biology of human arousal that informs how you work with couples. It's really fascinating, this whole business of um, arousal and readiness and energy. Um, uh, and when we, when we think of, of affects, hum, you know, human emotions, uh, we often separate them out um, from the arousal system. But actually, one way of looking at uh, feelings, emotions, uh, is that they ride on the wave of arousal, that arousal really uh, comes first. And affects, uh, the way I think of it is, if I had an instrument, a wind instrument, my blowing through the wind instrument would be um, akin to arousal. Um, and the notes that I play would be more like emotion. Um, so there's there's high emotion, um, high arousal states, high sympathetic states, and sympathetic states here, we're talking about vitality, um, affects, come hither, excitement, you know, Freud's life instinct. Um, it is what makes us originally, I think, uh, get out of the womb. Otherwise, we'd all probably stay there and order pizza and watch television. And so the, the sympathetic nervous system um, is our life force, gets us out um, and moving. And the low affects or the, the lower parasympathetic emotions states um, allows us to relax and to meditate and to re, you know, refresh, um, to digest, all these things. And so I, I find that this, this whole area of, of arousal, of you know, excitement um, on one end, 
and then very high on the excitement area, a readiness for action. Action, uh, you know, in the extreme would be to fight or to flee. Um, and then on the bottom end, this, you know, area of, of relaxation, also on, in its extreme, um, our need to um, close down, shut down, um, uh, drop away, uh, and in many cases, um, a reaction to danger uh, or life threat, uh, which is to faint or to collapse. I find this very important, very useful in, in looking at human interactions and relationships in particular. Because in order for two people to spend a lot of time around each other and to depend on each other uh, and, to, uh, um, uh, and to be able to regulate one another, uh, this, this um, nervous system problem or, uh, is something I think that has to be reckoned with um, uh, in all relationships. Uh, th there are some people who quite naturally get along very well on a nervous system level and they don't, um, they balance each other out very well, perhaps, or they, uh, they um, complement each other very well. But they don't, these two nervous systems don't trigger um, threat or danger. Um, or if they do, they do it in such a way that, uh, that uh, is, you know, easy to manage. And while there, there are those, you know, uh, pairings, there are other pairings that are not as fortunate um, and they seem to they seem to trigger uh, each other uh, very very quickly. It's almost as if these two nervous systems don't get along very well. And uh, I view this as sub psychological, um, having not to do with psychology so much as it being um, very you know subcortical, automatic brain um, memory systems, and and perhaps you know. Um, two nervous systems that see threat too quickly uh, and react and respond in that way. So, Well, let's talk a little bit about what this might mean, two nervous systems that get along well with each other. I know there's someone that I know here in Boulder who said to me recently, oh, my God, when I'm around this woman, my nervous system just relaxes. And I thought, oh, this is a contemporary way for people who are familiar with somatic psychology and this whole field to talk about falling in love, you know, how this person makes my nervous system feel. Right. So what do you mean when you're talking about two nervous systems that get along well together? I, I want to put a finger on what you just said because I want to come back to that because that's an important thing you just brought up. Um, two, well, if we were to imagine, um, uh, you know, uh, two brains uh, with spinal columns, you know, uh, uh, central nervous systems, two brains just, you know, interacting. If we were to animate those two brains um, uh, in terms of, of sensory perception, uh, you know, would, you know, would they, uh, would they be well-tuned together, kind of like tuning forks? Um, or, you know, would they be averse to one another? Um, uh, and I, I think I'm imagining it in that way. Uh, but you you also brought up something about um, this, you know, whenever I'm around him or her, uh, I just feel this relaxation. So there is, I think, a way of looking at the, the, the lower um, emotional parasympathetic states um, when there's love involved as being, you know, quiet love. Um, Alan Shore has talked about this uh, recently. Um, uh, and quiet love is in, is in the lower ranges of, you know, uh, of arousal. And that's that what Winnicott calls sort of the quiet alert state uh, or just, you know, going on being and being with another person ah, and just feeling sort of at ease at home and relaxed and not anxious, not nervous. Um, that's a very important, I think, um, quality for a couple to uh, to experience. There's also exciting love, and that's described differently. That's in the higher area, the sympathetic area. And most often people describe exciting love as being infatuation, uh, you know, just meeting somebody and being very excited, and, and, um, and along with that comes anxiety, that, that excitement. Um, and, uh, but, you know, exciting love is also very important 
as well. I think um, I think there are some people who um, who can probably uh, uh, enjoy just one or the other and stay in quiet love and, and not feel like they're missing the excitement. But many people, I think, want both. Uh, they want to experience both excitement with their partner, um, which is more of a, of a dopaminergic system, excitement. Um, it, it kind of adds to that addictive quality to love, uh, the wanting to come back to it again and again. Um, but people are also wanting the the quiet love, the ability to just be with another person and not have to do anything, not have to perform, not have to be a different uh, person than who they are. Um, I think probably those two, having those two in a relationship uh, would be the ideal. Now, let's talk a little bit about this idea of regulation and how my partner could help me regulate and is that really my partner's responsibility or is it my responsibility to learn to regulate myself when my nervous system becomes all out of whack because xyz has happened well i think both are true if if as an adult well let's go back to infancy as an infant you have no self-regulatory capacities so there are two forms of regulation that are occurring uh during infancy and that is uh, external regulation. That is, the the caregiver is externally regulating the infant. Um, uh, but there is also interactive regulation going on uh, as well. If if you know in in the in the best case scenarios, where there is a curiosity and interest in the infant, there is you know Eric Erickson described it in his writings as you can't really tell who's. Uh, leading and who's following this dance between the caregiver and the infant um, when they start going they start moving there is a uh, this this uh, this rhythm this dance you can see this also in Beatrice Beebe's work with mother infant pairs so there is interactive regulation face to face eye to eye skin to skin um, but there is no self regulation until the development or the beginning of the development of the frontal area, the prefrontal cortex, around 10, 11, 12 months. And that's really in its very, very early stages. So as we get older, this self-regulatory function, which is uh, basically the frontal area, the frontal lobes, and also, uh, some might argue, in, uh, in the back of the brain, um, the development of, of what Stephen Porges calls the ventral vagal system, uh, social engagement system, these two operating to manage your own uh, internal state, uh, hold impulses, tolerate frustration, wait your turn, be able to you know relax yourself so that you can stay in conversation with a, a partner. Um, that's very important, and we could say that a person who has no capacity or very little capacity to self-regulate would probably end up in hospital or jail at some point, uh, but not a relationship, um, you know, an equal relationship. So, yes, there, there is a responsibility in the adult partnership for people to regulate themselves. But there is a misunderstanding, I think, um, uh, in our culture that, uh, that that is solely the responsibility in the relationship is each partner for themselves. I regulate myself, you regulate yourself, and if you have a problem, you deal with it. If I have a problem, I deal with it. And this this idea um, leads to a lot of other problems, the outsourcing of uh, therapists, you know, to deal with our problems interpersonally, um, the, you know, uh, doing things um, that are kind of like the idea, uh, which I also take um, umbrage to. Uh, you've got to learn how to love yourself before you can love another person. If you understand um, infant development and developmental trajectory, we don't do anything very well by ourselves on our own. Everything we do, basically, um, we learn from another person or other people. We learn about ourselves. We learn uh, to love ourselves. We learn about our value. Um, and that's continually happening in our interactions with other people. But in love relationships, um, uh, if you and I, Tammy, were sitting across from each other in close distance, face-to-face and eye-to-eye, 
you could literally see what is going on inside of me before I know what's going on in me. And I can see what's going on in you before you know what's going on in you. That's because the, the eyes are more of a, a window to the autonomic nervous system to the, than to the soul. And being that I can do that and you can do that, it's much more efficient for me to, uh, to regulate you and you to regulate me. Uh, in this interactive process than for me to sit there as an island and to try to manage myself or expect you to manage yourself. I I think that's a false notion that leads to lots of problems. Uh, And when you see people doing this very well, you see how it works. Um, uh, When it's done well, it's effortless. Uh, People, uh, again, it's like a dance. Um, People are uh, making micro-attunements to one another and making micro misattunements as well, but these are not picked up very much because the uh, in this in this interactive regulatory process that's being done well um, with all the errors that are being made, there's so many uh, quick error corrections and repairs that nobody is aware of these mistakes, and so you see it as quite a natural dance. It only becomes a problem when there's a glitch in the system, and you and I uh, facing each other go through a period of sustained misattunement where neither of us are able to uh, to correct uh, a mistake or a series of mistakes that happen in the interaction. And then we start to feel distress. Then we start to feel hot inside. Then our arousal begins to move up. And if we still can't manage this and, and course correct and repair, then we're uh, more likely than not to experience this as a threat response. Um, um, and and, uh, and that may cause us to move away from each other. Uh, and if that continues, uh, then the next time, uh, each time we get together and we talk about that particular subject or deal with that particular issue or, uh, or in that particular environment, um, uh, these anticipatory systems, preparatory systems, um, that protect us from making the same mistakes again and again, um, activate, and now we have this biological reaction to one another, um, sort of a, a kindling effect, where we're now worried about making the same mistake and, and having that mistake sustain over time and then again leading to a threat response in which we either fight or flee um, or in some cases terribly uh, we collapse. And, uh, and that's where you have really the problem that keeps repeating over and over again that drives couples, drives partners away from each other. Okay, now I'm just going to circle back for a moment because you said something that I think people might find a little controversial or not fully understand, which is that you said, you know, this idea that you have to love yourself first. You can only love another person to the depth that you can love yourself and you have to start with yourself. And and you're, I think, saying something different. Can you clarify that? Well, I think if people thought about it logically, how does one learn to love oneself in a vacuum? Um you know, we learn to love and to be loved simultaneously. These are simultaneous actions. And uh, to to suggest that somebody should back out of relationships um, or not be in a relationship uh, because they're not ready, they need to learn how to love themselves, where then do they go to learn to do that? Is there a love-yourself school? Well, no, there isn't. Now, there's therapy, and that is a relationship with another person. So there again, um, if, if there's going to be sort of a remedial work in, in that area, it, uh, it may be done with a clergy member or, or uh, a, a teacher or a therapist. Um, but it's going to be with somebody. It's not going to be in a cave somewhere. It's not going to be at, at, a, at a monastery. Um, it's, what about the mirror work that is sometimes recommended? Look into the mirror and love yourself that way. Well, the mirror is, is one thing, but here's the problem. Um, I think I said last time that there's nothing more difficult on the planet than another person. Um, looking in the mirror is just one person, that's you, interacting with you and, uh, and the internal you. That does not prepare you to go live with uh, another person, another brain, who is going to surprise you instantly. And here, here lies the, 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 the rub, <laughs> is that um, the, the interactions that happen between two individuals happen so fast 
um, and so automatically that unless someone is um, uh, well-tuned to that other person, um, that is going to either heal past injuries, uh, whether they're attachment injuries or whatever, or uh, aggravate them, amplify them in some negative way. And this is actually one of the problems in childhood when children have a bad start. Um, they're more inclined to repeat uh, patterns in relationships, not because they want that, it's because it's all they know, it's all they've experienced, and they get the environment to act and to react uh, with them in ways that are familiar to them. Um, and the bad news there can be that a child who has been, uh, has been abused can be abused again and again in, in the environment. Um, so, so relationships, you know, hurt us. Only relationships can heal us. Uh, and I guess my point is the folly of, of, of people thinking that I have to back out of this whole business by working on myself somewhere as if, you know, again, you, you know, you're working in some vacuum, some uh, place with a book in one hand, you know, and, uh, and maybe, uh, you know, um, a mirror in the other hand. I mean, it's just not realistic. Uh, we, we learn to do this in real time. We learn how to love ourselves by loving another person and learning how to do that well. And uh, some of us learn it early and we uh, know how to do it better. And uh, some of us, you know, it takes a lifetime for us to learn how to do this well. Okay. And so now I'm with you and I want to work with my partner. And one or both of us are activated because of something or other. Something has set us off. And maybe something set my partner off and now I'm not feeling very centered either. And we're looking at each other. And you're talking about that there's some way that we can attune to each other, looking into each other's eyes, that we'll be sensing and looking for something. Can you help me understand what we're actually going to do looking at each other? Because we well, both don't feel very good right now, but we're staring at each other. Yes. Um, uh, and here's, here's what happens uh, in a nutshell. When, uh, when you and your partner are, um, are relaxed and alert uh, you have resources available to you to be able to error correct, to be able to not just pick things up automatically, but there's time and there are resources inside your brain and your body to make use of that data and to make corrections um, in a higher way um, using higher parts of the brain. The higher parts of the brain that require um, considerable amounts of oxygen and glucose to drive. Um, so you need time and you need uh, th those resources. And in order to have that, you have to be in a certain range of arousal where you're not either too high or too low. If you're too high, in other words, too excited, um, your brain, parts of your brain turn off, the error-correcting parts. And what takes over is, uh, are the automatic parts of your brain that, that know things based on experience only, that shoot first and ask questions later and really are dedicated to keeping you alive, even though your loved one is across from you, not a predator. Um, but that's a problem. Um, when people get either too excited or too um, down-regulated, they don't have the benefit of their full brain online, and so they're making more mistakes. You and your partner could be looking at each other and be making lots of misappraisals. And that, that means you, you see her face and it looks to you a certain way. Under ordinary circumstances, it wouldn't mean much. But, but now that you're, you're more excited, feeling more threatened, uh, it's much easier for you to misinterpret the meaning of a particular expression or a sound of a voice and to, uh, and to uh, miss. Um, uh, understand the intentionality of that look. And that's where people get into trouble. The reason I would have you look at each other face to face is that when people are in distress, they most often don't look at each other's eyes. They look down, they look away. And what happens is that they uh, begin to look at an internal representation of that person. 
um, that's more static and not positive, and basically go inside their own heads and uh, and then making more and more errors of misappraisal. Um, whereas looking into each other's eyes um, forces a kind of having to be there in real time, because again, you're looking into the autonomic nervous system in real time. Um, that creates an advantage uh, in being able to actually see what the other person is doing than to be in your own head and thinking. Having said that, you could still make a lot of mistakes if you're very upset with each other, looking face-to-face, eye-to-eye, and that's where a third person comes in uh, during the, that time um, to help the two of you uh, slow things down, to really look, uh, uh, to see what it is you're noticing on the face, to be asked questions like, what does that face mean to you? Uh, when her voice does that, uh, what, uh, what does that mean? Um, uh, when she looks that way at you, why is she looking that way? Uh, what is she thinking right now? All of this slows everything down to where uh, the two of you can think better, but also can start to observe each other better. Um, that's very important uh, because, again, when we are excited and when we're interacting, it's a very accelerated process. And if we start to feel threatened by each other, if we're starting to make too many mistakes of, of uh, uh, misattuned you know, moments that are sustaining, then that process accelerates even faster. And, now, and then we're off to the races. It's very easy to go from love to war uh, in relationships. So th- that first part of looking at each other quietly, uh, maybe even starting you off with not talking, but just looking at each other, uh, begins to lower arousal and begins to uh, put your attention on each other's faces uh, and eyes. That does a lot. That's not everything, but that does a lot to slow things down to where you can start to see things again. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. So, of course, Stan, I've heard the phrase, the eyes are windows to the soul, but I've never before heard anybody say the eyes are the window to the autonomic nervous system, and I'm not quite sure I know what that means. Can you help me understand that? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give um, credit where credit um, – well, actually, Alan Shore um, gave me that line, and I'm not sure where he got it from, but I'll just say – let's just say it's Alan's. Uh, um, idea. The eyes are uh, the windows to the nervous system. And if you um, look at the way the brain is constructed, the the eyes are part of the brain. Um, The optic nerve goes uh, to the back, uh, uh, to the primary visual cortex. And uh, and, um, basically, when looking into, into the eyes and around the eyes, you're looking at the pupils opening and closing. Those are uh, uh, those are autonomic nervous system functions of the pupils opening and closing. Um, the same with the eye movements. And the muscles around the eyes um, are striated muscles that uh, are very much uh, being um, managed by not just the, the, the facial cranial nerves, but also uh, the limbic system uh, and the autonomic nervous system. So you, you basically, as, as real-time as you could possibly get, because uh, real-time is actually very different than what we think, um, uh, we're pretty much in real-time, in present moment, when we're looking into the eyes of, our, uh, of another. Um, we're watching, uh, we can see them thinking, we can see them uh, hesitating, we can see them perhaps using resources to lie or to, de- or to deceive. Um, we can see them opening up to us, closing down to us uh, with the pupils. So uh, that's what I mean, uh, you know, uh, windows to the autonomic nervous system. You're basically looking into each other's brains. Um, and 
you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a way that is as close to real-time, present moment as we can possibly get. Okay, so I, I want to try to make this really hit the ground in a very concrete way for people. Sure. So if somebody's partner is upset about something, could be something reasonable, could be something unreasonable, doesn't matter. They're very, very upset. And I want to help, quote-unquote, regulate my partner. How do I do that? You know, you talked in part one about, you know, we need to develop an owner's manual for our partner, and we have to look very carefully. Yeah. So what do I do in this situation? How do I work with their eyes? What's your recommendation? Uh, you know, the, I like to think of it this way. In, in all matters um, of relating, especially in love relationships, um, um, relief should come first. We should always lead with relief. And uh, and so it, in helping a partner calm down or to move up, because maybe they're dropping down and getting depressed and feeling hopeless and helpless, is to do something, say something that uh, that is unequivocal in its friendliness to the other person. And this is really to, to um, disengage uh, any threat process that is going on. Um, because you have to understand that people brace themselves for what they anticipate, uh, uh, what they believe is going to happen or is happening, and uh, in their mind, it's something that's not safe. It's not. It's not friendly. So I think the first thing to do is uh, is uh, some gesture, because the fastest thing is generally something that's not a lot of talk. Uh, talking actually uh, too much uh, can drive a person in the wrong direction. But it's something very pithy um, or friendly. Uh, you know, I'm really sorry. Or, you know, I, I know exactly how you feel. Or maybe a look in the eyes that just mere sadness. Um, or a lowering of the head, lowering yourself to someone who feels that you're not, you're not lowering yourself. Um, there's all sorts of sounds and movements, facial expressions, gestures, the well-placed touch that can signal friendliness, which brings that person back into a range of arousal where they can, again, start to be able to think. Because that's really the game here, is to manage each other's arousal so that neither of you are redlining above the line into high sympathetic, you know, fight-flight states, or below into uh, crashing, you know, uh, collapsing, um, unconscious, dissociative states. That um, that you're you're both managing that um, by doing and saying what is necessary to either move that person up a little bit or move them down a little bit in the arousal area, keeping them in the pocket. In other words, uh, where where both of you have enough oxygen and glucose to to drive everything. So you your full brain is there and you can act and react contingently rather than automatically. So I would say basically the skill here and the understanding here is that we always lead with relief first. Because if I don't, if I want to get something, if I want to influence you, if I want to um, make sure you hear me, then it's my uh, duty to, to make sure that you are in a place um, where you're feeling safe enough and you feel I'm friendly enough that you can uh, that you can do that. Otherwise, I'm making uh, it impossible. Uh, if I am trying to defend myself, or explain myself, or attack you, or to you know say, well, I know I do that, but you, what about what you do? All of these things um, are unfriendly and uh, and drive the system upward towards threat. You have this great phrase I like: wave the flag of friendliness. Find a way to yes. do that. I like that phrase. Yeah, yeah, and this and it's it's so easy to do. I mean, there's there's drive-by friendliness. I mean, people you you you, you know you can go by somebody you're you're angry with and give them a wink or kiss them and 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 uh, and whisper in their ear, "I'm sorry, I'm an idiot," and then go on and walk away. Um, or you know, there's any number of creative things that someone can do. And of course, the things that work are the things that you want to do. <laughs> Um, 
this is a creative process. It's not a paint-by-numbers process. Um, and uh, and the, 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 the fastest wins here, the, the way you know, to, to, uh, to calm somebody down or to relax them and to return them to a state of where they're not in danger, um, that can be done very quickly um, and should be done quickly. Um, uh, so that people can resume talking or doing whatever they need to do. One of the things I've watched, Stan, in my own relationship and with friends of mine is in an argument, people do so much talking and the talking isn't really going anywhere. It sort of becomes circular talking. And it sounds like you're describing a way in an argument that couples could learn a different approach where they're not spinning around in conversation that's not going anywhere. Most talk is blah, blah, blah. It really is. We're chatterboxes uh, as humans. Um, and you know, most of what we, we say is, uh, is um, uh, not really relevant. And when we're in distress, that increases tenfold. Um, uh, and one of the reasons that people are talking so much when they're getting uh, aroused uh, is because they're losing that ability to monitor themselves, to uh, to think about what it is they're doing and saying. And so now they're much more automatic. And when people are uh, using the automatic brain solely because they're too aroused, um, uh, they're going to say the same things over and over and over again. And um, an observer can you know, it's very easy for an observer to uh, to notice this because it's quite boring if you're around people who are doing this because uh, it's the same old, same old. Um, and that comes from a, a not understanding about this nervous system thing and about um, uh, how um, how to uh, become friendly and um, and remind your partner that your lovers, you're not uh, you're not adversaries, um, and how quickly disagreements, distress can be handled. Um, uh, and one of the things we do in my work in PACT is we videotape couples. And one particular game I think is kind of fun to do with couples, and I think people can do this on their own, uh, is, to, um, is to have a time limit of five minutes, I think, is, is, is a good time limit. If you had five minutes to get in and out of a fight, it could be about anything, money, time, sex, mess, kids, anything. Only five minutes because after five minutes, you had a date of something you had to go to together, and uh, you both had to be truly okay at that next event with no residue. Could you manage a disagreement, an argument, a con- an area of of, uh, of importance, um, in five minutes, and tied up so that both of you end up right side up and feeling fine. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to find the cure to cancer in five minutes, or you're going to resolve everything in your relationship, or maybe anything at all. But could could you work collaboratively to m- ensure? that you both get what you want in this moment and you're both pleased enough that you can shift states and do something completely different. Now, I think that's an important skill set because there are people who cannot resolve a conflict or manage a conflict uh, in five minutes or in 30 minutes or, for that matter, 30 years. And um, there's a a real tick-tock element to this whole business here of conflict and, uh, and, uh, and managing um, a win-win situation between two people. Uh, that I think when people begin to realize how much time they waste in their life um, arguing things that can't, uh, that can't resolve or dealing with each other in a way that keeps both people in distress longer than they need to be, um, I think when people see that and begin to become aware of how inefficient they are, they begin to learn how to to do this quickly, <laughs> and that there is a way, there is a way for me to get what I want and to ensure that you get what you want, um, uh, and to do it in a way. But see, you and I would have to be thinking collaboratively to do that. 
Yeah, that's what I was curious about, because I'm imagining many people listening think there's no way I could get in and out of an argument about the kids or money in five minutes oh, or less. Oh, there's such a way. What are the core skills or attitudes me and my partner have to have in order to do that successfully? Well, I think the, I think, um, uh, the, the, the core skill is not just a skill, but it's a principle. It's a principle of that you and I uh, together um, have to operate as a truly mutual system. In other words, everything we do must be good for me and you, which makes it more complex, much harder to do if I'm in it to get something at your cost. Um, so uh, this, this again, is thinking in a particular way that the relationship is, is built on a principle of collaboration. Good for me, good for you. That, is, that means that I'm not going to do anything without making sure you're okay with it. Because if you're not okay with my decision or what I want to do, I will pay for that. And rather than build memories of unfairness and injustice, um, um, I take care of that, we take care of that uh, in the moment, Therefore, we don't have anything to remember. We don't have anything to go back and look back on and say, that was unfair. So it takes a little more time, uh, at least in theory. Actually, it's quicker. Um, but that's how we roll. That's how we do things. So it's a skill set, but I don't want to say that it's just that. It's also a principle, because there's some people who do not believe in being collaborative. Um, or they, they say they do believe it, but they actually don't do it. Um, and when it comes down to it, I want this, and it's good for me. And if push comes to shove, if it's not good for you, well, sorry. And that's what pe people mostly do. Um, that's one thing. The other is that they drive their threat up so quickly that they can't think, and they're now in a position of absolutely standing strong in their own interests. And that will never work, ever, in a, a love relationship. Um, it can't work. It's unsustainable. So you'll see people who are trying to argue for what they want. They're um, unable to argue for what the other person wants, which means they don't put themselves in their shoes. They don't care, basically. That's one problem. The other problem is that the mismanagement of, of conflict, where partners don't understand the need to be friendly and to watch what they say and do during times of distress. Um, and to uh, and to wave the flag of friendliness to each other so that they, they can think. And if they don't do that, they go to war. And again, like I said, these lower parts of the brain that are very, very fast, that have been around for a long time, they work on experience, they shoot first, ask questions later, and then you look at the dead bodies at the end and go, oops. Uh, and that's that's the other problem. So I'd say those two things. Um you know, uh, a couple partners should ask themselves, um, do I believe in true mutuality? Do I believe that we should both win? Uh, do I believe that in order to get what I want, I must also make sure and understand what you want and speak to that as well? Okay. And what if one person in the couple finds themselves just too upset, too aroused? They're not thinking straight. Yes, I believe in mutuality, but in this moment... I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I'm, something else has taken over me. What can I do in that moment to bring myself back into the realm of a thinking person that... Yourself or what should the partner Both. do? Both. Okay. The person who is in distress um, is not in the best position to think. Therefore, the other partner has, I think, a responsibility to do something to reduce the distress of, of that other partner. And so if you were the person, let's say it's you and, you and I, you were the person um, who uh, started to feel more and more threatened and not happy with what I was saying, and we only had five minutes, and we had to wrap this up so we could go, I probably would say something like, you know, I know this is not working for you, and there's something I'm doing or saying that's not helping. I, am, I know that. I am really sorry. I promise you we'll make this right. Um, uh, in fact, right after tonight, what we do after tonight, maybe, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk more and I'll come up with something to make this 
okay for you. Um, but we, we, we're going to have to go, are you okay with this? I love you so much, and I'm so sorry I made it hard, but we'll work this out. I mean, there are ways to be able to tie something up in the moment and to be able to move along, but the other partner has to be sensitive and aware um, uh, you know, of the other person's perspective and, and the, their state of mind. Now, that may not work. <laughs> For everything I'm saying, there's a, there's a situation, uh, you know, that, uh, that, you know, but what about this? Um, um, and then we'd have to take that one by one. Now, I know in your work you also emphasize when you're talking about, quote-unquote, fighting well, the idea of repair. And I wonder if you can speak some to that. How do we repair after we've blown it with our partner? Well, again, the fastest wins. There's a, a, there's a, a big TikTok element to this here, that the, the longer it takes, if I hurt you um, and either don't acknowledge it um, or I don't fix it or repair it or make it right in some way, um, uh, and you feel intensely about what I just did, uh, that will go into long-term memory for you, and that will be a, basically a fault of mine. I allowed that to happen. So there's a problem with memory management here that the longer you and I take to repair something, the more likely we will remember this for another day, and it will just pile on basically to perhaps you know a litany of, of similar examples, um, and, uh, and this just builds and builds. So um, the the going away from each other and giving a long break, uh, say, of a day. Some people do that. They, they don't talk for a day or they don't get back to each other for uh, several hours. Um, is penny-wise pound-foolish because uh, in the time um, uh, between the, the breach and the relationship, if, there, if I hurt you, there's a breach in our relationship in the safety and security system. In the time between that occurrence and uh, and making things right or putting things back together again, um, you and I are going to suffer in some manner. We're going to not uh, attend as well to our work. We're not going to think as clearly. We're not going to perform very well anywhere. Our world is not going to be right. Uh, we're expending expensive chemicals that are probably um, uh, creating more wear and tear on our on our bodies. Um, nothing good is happening, actually. Uh, after the first 30 minutes of being very, very excited, it takes about 25, 30 minutes to calm down completely. Um, after that, there's a choice to not come back to the table and repair things. The longer it takes to repair, the more likely that's going to go into long-term memory, the more dangerous the relationship becomes, because, again, we're in our own heads practicing what had happened. There's no um, there's no correction, there's no modification in real time. So I'm left to my own thoughts. Um, those thoughts aren't pleasant. Um, and it's going to build uh, uh, on uh, feeling threatened uh, in the relationship. Um, and then the relationship will have much more to repair in the future. So nothing good can come of waiting a long time. The fastest wins, and we know this in my family with my daughter, my wife, um, uh, you know, when things happen, and they do happen, um, we're all very quick to, to try to put things back together again because life sucks in between. Uh, it's just not pleasant um, uh, when relationships feel broken uh, and, uh, and our partner, somebody's not happy with us that we care about. Um, you know, we can compartmentalize it maybe, but uh, we're still being affected by it. So I like to encourage people to, as fast as they can to fix things. Um, here's the other thing, is that if I do something to hurt you, and if I, if I fix it, and that means do it right with you, uh, very quickly, you're likely not going to remember it. Um, uh, again, that's how memory, memory works. Uh, taking care of something very quickly, uh, it doesn't go into memory, and people don't uh, use it again uh, uh, the next time something happens. Any advice to someone on how to initiate repair? Like, okay, I know I need to repair with this person, but I don't really want to because I'm mad, but I heard Stan say that I'm supposed to. Yes. <laughs> it's very 
very hard. I mean, I, you know, I think everybody can relate to the idea of I'm mad and I, you know, now I know I could go back to him or her and say, I'm sorry, or kiss and make up or smile or do something friendly. But damn it, I don't want to, I, you know, I'm stomping my feet and I'm mad and, uh, you know, all sorts of things I want to do other than that. Um, I think what brings us back to the table is, a, is uh, in a, again, an agreed-upon principle that this is what we do. Um, we, uh, we agree that it's in our best interest, both personally and mutually, to fix things as fast as possible because, and then we would have to elaborate on that, because we don't gain anything from it. We get sicker. Um, our relationship becomes more dangerous. We suffer. Our work doesn't do very well. Nothing goes really well. We have come up with all these reasons why it's a good idea to, to build that in as a law, as a principle. Uh, this is what we do. This is what we don't do. And I think only by having some, some real ideas um, and have it thought through of why, why it's a bad idea to continue this for a long time um, and what are the consequences for doing that, I think that can uh, sometimes um, overrule the desire to punish you or to punish myself or to sulk or whatever. Um, so, for instance, uh, I'm mad at my wife and we get into a fight and I'm really mad and I'm at work and I've calmed down enough to where I can now think and I can think about repairing it. I can think about calling her up or doing something uh, to reconnect and put our relationship back together again. Uh, and I'm fighting with myself. Um, I don't really want to do this. But now I have thoughts, well, okay, if I don't do this, I'm going to be in for a long day of pain. Um, I remind myself about all the, the, uh, uh, you know, all the things that I am not getting for this effort uh, to maintain my angry stance. Uh, and I come to the conclusion, you know, I'm just going to call and do something. Um, and then my partner believes the same thing, and so she's very helpful. It makes it easy for me. Uh, and then together uh, we're able to, to put uh, the relationship back together in quick order. You have to have two, interest in, inter uh, two people who are interested in this uh, and have uh, reasons for why it's a good idea to do this. Okay, a couple more things that I want to draw out from your work, Stan, that I think are really practical, and honestly, I haven't heard other people talk about them. So here's one. You recommend that we have a 24-7 hotline <laughs> to our partner, and you mean that literally, that I could contact my partner 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and say, honey, there's something I'd like to talk to you about, or there's something I need, and... Okay, so I don't think this would go over very well in my current <laughs> situation, and I'm wondering if other people might feel the same way. It's a principle, and like all principles, um, uh, there there is you know there's there's an abstraction, uh, uh, you know, it's an abstraction. So, twenty four seven, would you be willing to do that? Well. Um, a lot of people say, no, you know what, I don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night um, while you tell me that you have, you're, you're thinking about uh, stuff that's bothering you. Uh, you know, I want to sleep. Or That's a good example. Yeah, yeah or uh, I'm at work. I, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not going to get off the phone if I'm in surgery. And, uh, I mean, get on the phone and, and go out of the surgery room. Of course, I'm not going to do that. All right, so, so there's, in practice, there's the reasonable uh, part of this, and that is, of course, um, reasonable people can agree that there are times that would not be appropriate. But, uh, but the, re the, the reason that the idea of the 24-7 there is, is going back to, an, to uh, an attachment principle having to do with um, do you have somebody that you're tethered with are you tethered to your partner? Do the two of you act in such a way that you're the go-to people for each other, that you can contact each other, you have a red hotline to each other that nobody else has? And would that be a benefit to you? If you had that, would that be a benefit? Could you see that you would have an advantage over those people who do not have that in life? 
Um, uh, and just having it, just knowing that it's there and that you both are giving permission for that to be there, does that give you some solace? Does that relax you and make you feel secure in, in life? I think that's the real spirit behind the, the 24-7 thing here. It's, uh, there's a spirit of this that both people agree that, uh, that uh, it's a good idea for at least one person, I appoint one person to have this ability, and uh, there's a quid pro quo in this. I can do that with them too. The remarkable thing is when people feel absolutely that they have this ability to do this, that they agree, it is rarely abused in my experience. I have not seen it abused. The people who look like they would abuse this are usually with somebody who somehow is holding back a little bit and is signaling, you know what, I'm not that available. And that makes the other person, uh, their concerns uh, amplified. But I don't see people really taking advantage of this once they both agree that it's a good idea. In, in reality, in practice, they don't bug each other. Um, um, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, with, uh, with, uh, in medicine, um, some of the, you know, sort of the bane of, of, of general practice or family medicine uh, is uh, the highly anxious somatic patient, the anxious patient who's always wanting to call and has a lot to, to complain about. And um, the, the strategy of working with those patients for the doctor is to make more appointments make more appointments more frequent, which seems counterintuitive. But actually, it calms people down. Uh, when people know that you're available and that you can be seen more often, um, they don't get as anxious and they don't call as often. They don't, they're not as, as um, uh, worried. I think the same is true uh, in love relationships. Um, a lot of people are worried about uh, being abandoned, being dismissed, because they've had that experience in their life. And they may have a partner who in some way is signaling that, um, which is amplifying that effect. Um, the 24-7 idea is to, is to calm that system down and to, uh, and to uh, uh, give uh, to people a sense of primacy, that they are... Uh, that they are connected to each other, tethered together, which I think I've said to you, I think is, is the, the best anti-anxiety medication, antidepressive me medication there is. Um, that idea of being tethered uh, to someone or what Bowlby called a secure base. So we're really talking about a spirit of something. And people can take this quite literally um, and, um, and panic about it and say, well, that's not right. I'm not going to do that. Um, but they would, they would be misunderstanding the spirit of this. Something else I wanted to ask you about is you recommend that couples work together to develop morning and evening rituals in order to stay connected. And I wonder if you can talk some about that. I mean, what about one person likes to stay up late and one person likes to go to bed early? Do we really have to go to bed at the same time? No, they they don't. Although there's a there's been a lot of you know a lot of studies on co sleeping, and uh, this is co sleeping with an adult, um, and you know that uh, that during the sleep cycle that people's uh, sympathetic nervous systems are regulating very nicely when they uh, sleep uh, together at night. So there's some evidence to show that co sleeping that people get a better a better rest. We're, we're kind of meant to, to co sleep as uh, as humans. Um, having said that, that's not the reason uh, I wrote about that. Nighttime and morning um, for children and for adults seem to be the most vulnerable times of the day. If you think about it, those are the biggest separations and reunions we experience. Um, and, and both are, uh, are separation reunions in some ways. Um, we reunite at night, um, but then we're going to separate at night, too, by going unconscious and going to sleep. In the morning, we come out of unconsciousness and into wakefulness, which is as, can be as shocking and disturbing for people as just as going to sleep and waiting for sleep to, uh, to come about. Um, and so if you had only two times in your busy schedule uh, as an adult to connect with your partner, um, I'm recommending that those be the times concentrated on. Nighttime, putting each other to bed in some fashion and waking up together and launching each other's day. 
Um, uh, and I think we, we don't pay much attention to this uh, uh, many times. We don't think much of it. But if you, if you have your listeners or you yourself feel what it's like when your partner goes to sleep before you, you might notice a slight pang, a feeling of you're alone, you've been left by that person. Or if you've woken up in the morning and the bed is, uh, that was once filled is empty, you might have a slight feeling of, of a disorientation and being left. Um, and so I'm just talking about that. Uh, now, there are people who snore at night, have restless leg syndrome. There are night owls and there are, uh, you know, uh, early birds. And uh, it doesn't make sense um, for people, especially through the lifespan, to always be able to go to bed together at the same time or in the same room even. But it, it, it could make sense to put the earlier person to bed um, and that there would be some small ritual um, that closes the day together and that you're the last two people that you see at night. And there's so many ways to do this. Um, I recommend doing something that's not parallel play. In other words, you know, where you're both watching a television show and not talking. Uh, but it's something where you read to each other, um, maybe say a prayer to each other, maybe wish people that who are alive and dead um, um, well as you drift off to sleep together. Um, uh, anything uh, uh, that's uh, perhaps face-to-face. Um, it can be brief, very brief. The person who needs to stay up um, can lie down for a little bit, although many times people who lie down uh, to put their partners to bed find themselves more tired than they think, and they just fall asleep. Um, other times they will get up and they'll, uh, they'll do their work. I'm always concerned about people who are up alone at night, uh, depending on who they are and whether they're actually well-regulated when they're alone or whether they're uh, acting out uh, at night. And that's always a concern of mine. But there are people who cannot go to sleep at 8 o'clock, and there are other people who cannot stay awake past 8. So that's just a reality. In the morning, um, I think there are ways of, uh, like my wife, my wife will, will now, because she gets up earlier than I do, um, she will stand over me and she will um, um, kiss me and she, will, uh, uh, she won't ask me to open my eyes, but I have to smile um, in recognition of her saying goodbye so that, uh, so that I will remember that she said goodbye to me. And this is in consideration of me. So that when I wake up, I just don't find an empty bed. So there are ways of doing launchings, uh, you know, when one person leaves earlier than the other. Ideally, I think it is, I, if, if people want to try it and even just try it for a couple of days and see if their day goes better, um, I, think, I think ideally it does work nicely when you go to bed together, go to sleep together, and when you wake up together and launch each other in the morning. Okay, Stan, I have one final question for you. Okay. You've worked with so many different couples. Couples come to you, I'm sure many couples come to you in distress of all kinds and also just couples who want to deepen their relationship. And I'd love to know if there's a telltale sign, oh, this couple, they're going to make it, or, oh, this couple is really not meant to be together. You know, it's uh, being... You know, being a therapist is a lot like being an audience member um, while watching a play or a movie um, because uh, the therapist is really soaking in the couple and taking them in and watching them and feeling them. And, of course, the therapist has his or her own opinions, and, and uh, some of those opinions are uh, from the therapist's own life. But most often... I find for myself, when I start to feel that, oh, this couple's not going to make it, it's transient, and it is usually not me that's, that's originating that feeling. It's coming from one or both partners that they may be feeling helpless uh, or hopeless. <clears throat> and that feeling I've come to know uh, now passes. The thing about pair bonding is that nature does a brilliant job of putting people together. And, of course, there are all different configurations of, of couples. Um, uh, some are by choice and some are not by choice. But the ones that are by choice, I generally think nature does a brilliant job of matching people according to what's familiar and what's, what is even familial. So I don't see it as my job to, to decide whether people should or shouldn't be together. Um, 
relationships are incredibly sticky. And like the song, you know, breaking up is really hard to do. Uh, and so I respect that. And I, I think that ultimately um, it doesn't matter what I think. Um, a couple is going to surprise me almost always anyway. Um, they'll stay together or they won't stay together. Um, and they'll do that quite naturally, uh, regardless of, I think, therapy. Um, my goal is not to keep them uh, or to ensure that they stay together. My goal is to ensure that their relationship is secure functioning, that they're operating on the principles of true mutuality, fairness, justice, sensitivity, and that they're taking uh, good care of each other properly. Um, that's my interest, not so much whether they stay together. Um, but yeah, I do sit there. Sometimes I go, wow, this is really a great couple, and I expect good things from them. Um, and there are other p- people I'll sit in front of, and I'll go, how did they possibly even get together? How did they even find each other? Um, I'm amazed by some of the things I see, um, some of the arrangements I see that people make. And uh, my interest is that they're happy. Uh, it's not that their relationship should be the one I would choose or that I think uh, they should be doing what I think they should be doing. But I always look to see whether they are making each other happy. And um, one of the interesting things about working with people from all over the world is that unhappiness looks the same no matter what country you're in, no matter who, where you're from. Um, faces tend to look uh, uh, registered distress and unhappiness um, cross-culturally. And so this is really about uh, two people um, um, uh, forging a relationship that is sustainable and livable and, uh, and that supports life and vitality, and however they do that, uh, you know, um, is fine by me. But I, I, I can't really, really ever predict, uh, honestly, who's going to make it and who isn't going to make it. I can see things that look bad, and I can tell a couple, you know, from everything you're doing, um, uh, this, this relationship doesn't seem to have very long to live. And I can say that uh, based on the markers uh, that I see. But I can never really know for sure what's going to happen. I've been talking with Stan Tatkin. Stan has developed an incredibly helpful body of work, and I'm so pleased that Sounds True is able to put forward a six-session audio training course called Your Brain on Love, The Neurobiology of Healthy Relationships. Stan, thank you. Thanks for all of the great work you're doing. Thank you, Tammy. Soundstree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.